welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. For the past 20 years, it seems as if wherever there's been a sports law story involving athletes' rights, Michael McCann has been near the epicenter of it. Whether it was a member of former Ohio State player Maurice Claret's legal team in the groundbreaking case Claret v. NFL, or co-authoring a book with Ed O'Bannon, the former UCLA men's basketball player who found his likeness had been sold off by the NCAA to EA Sports for a college basketball video game, or writing for Sports Illustrated or Sportico, Michael McCann has been both in the trenches and writing about them. Michael is a visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School and founding director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law, where he is also a professor of law. Our conversation centers around recent key developments in Johnson v. NCAA, including the decision by the judge to certify class action status for all Power Five athletes with regards to broadcast NIL, a new term. We also discussed the new ability for the NLRB to certify joint employer status in cases beginning later this year. We talk about Dartmouth's men's basketball unionization appeal as it works its way through the NLRB process at the start of basketball season. And he offers some stark predictions and advice for the future of college sports should any or all of these legal cases pan out the way the plaintiffs intend. It's a great conversation. Michael, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you could join me today on this very fraught time for college athletics. Well, thank you for having me, Karen. There's a lot going on in college athletics. So there, sir, there certainly is. So let's start with sort of the bombshell that dropped late last week with the idea that we now have the class certification of a case that's being tried in California regarding broadcast name, image, and likeness. And for those who are just still trying to digest NIL, what is BNIL and lay the context for the case for us? Sure. So BNIL is, is broadcast name, image, and likeness. And the gist of it, the shorthand of it is money for appearing on TV, uh, money for appearing in other broadcasts that uh, pertain to college sports. So basically, college athletes being on TV and games, being part of billion-dollar TV contracts, demanding that they get some of that money. That's really the gist of it. And the the sort of the legal argument is that pro athletes receive compensation for being in broadcast. Now they're they're not paid directly for that. They're paid as part of collective bargaining, where the league and unions divide that revenue between owners and players. We're, obviously, in college sports because they're they're not employees at this moment that they're not able to form a union, so they can't negotiate for broadcasting rights. So they're asking for a court to grant a relief, uh, grant an injunction and grant damages that would pertain to being paid for being on games. Again, that the idea is that they're on they're on TV, their name, their image, their likeness in some cases would be compensable. And the reason why that's coming up now is because of a case that's called in-ray NIL antitrust litigation or house versus NCAA. It's sort of the more common name of it. And the gist of that case is there's a few college athletes that 
have sued the NCAA arguing two, two basic arguments. One is that before 2021, when the NCAA's interim NIL policy went into effect, why weren't college athletes paid NIL? And the argument is that they should have been paid. And they go back to 2016, that, that, that's the applicable statute of limitations. And the argument is that colleges in the NCAA are governed by antitrust law. Colleges are governed by antitrust law because they're competing businesses. They conspired, is the argument, to prevent athletes from getting money for NIL. So they want to get paid for that. And the broadcast NIL piece of this is they're still not getting money for being on TV. And they ought to get paid, is the argument. But that's the other antitrust piece of theirs. A, a, a collusion to prevent them from being compensated. They also want compensation for video games that weren't made, that could have been made, uh, if the NCAA had let college athletes appear in games. So that, that's the gist of, of that case. And the big news that came out, as you reference, is that the judge, Judge Wilkin, who's the same judge in the O'Bannon case, the same judge in Alston, she has certified the case as a class action. So it now represents something like 14,500 current and former athletes who fit into the parameters of this litigation. Conceivably, it could be the damages could be in the billions of dollars. If you look at the value of TV rights, if you look at NIL that could have been made. So now it doesn't mean the players are going to win. I mean, there's a lot to get to, but it, it's a pretty significant development and no doubt out a big worry to the NCAA and the other the other schools that are part of this would be uh, the power five conferences and their, and their members okay and for those who are not yet familiar power five has traditionally been defined as the SEC the ACC the big 12 the big 10 and the pac-12 of which the pac-12 is down to two members now <laughs> as of yeah. next year so we don't know what the status is going to be of the power five that's right that's right so the power five is kind of devolving into a power four some believe it will consolidate even further and i mean there's reason to think that these power conferences will eventually form two leagues just like pro just like pro leagues right the afc and nfc and the nfl western conference eastern conference and the nba it sure seems like there's about 30 or so schools kind of like a pro league that are uh, likely to eventually form some sort of association. And the, the significance of that is that it, the reason why it would happen is for TV rights, that it's just migrating in that direction. But for those that advocate and, and the lawyers that are advocating that college sports really is pro sports, it's kind of taking the form of pro sports. Uh, that's gonna, it's not going to help the NCAA in court. That's what's been interesting to me is it feels like uh, that this model has really emulated the pro sports model. And and I'm, I'm not asking you to go too far back in, in history, but broadcast NIL was a relatively new phenomenon for NFL players and NBA players when they re recently re renegotiated their contracts. So this, this is not an old idea. It's a relatively new idea. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, this, for, for, this is certainly an emerging topic because TV deals have expanded so precipitously for all of the, all of the sports in recent years that the money is really in television. And we also see an analogous controversy with actors uh, demanding compensation, right? For appearing in, in broadcasts or appearing in streaming. It's led to labor disputes. 
how do you divvy up the money between creators of content and the production houses? And that's something that goes beyond sports. And although it's a little different in sports, but but there there are analogous issues in place. So yeah, this is this is a larger topic than sports about how to divide the TV money and and increasingly how to divide the streaming money. I think that's really the future, right? Is as people are are watching sports via streaming rather than cable, rather than satellite, rather than over the air. I think we're going to see a lot more debate over how to divide streaming money. Do you see, um, other than losing the cash cow, which is the NCAA, you know, funding championships, there are a number of Division II and Division Three programs that are either investigating or getting into streaming of their games. Do you see them being impacted by this ruling? Yeah, they. So, so the ruling wouldn't directly govern them, but it would provide precedent that that other lawyers would surely rely on to say. If the athletes at this Division II school are on TV or on streaming, they have the same legal rights. That how do you distinguish two games? Uh, just labeling one Division I, one Division II, the other Division II is not going to be a sufficient distinction to explain that one ought to get paid and the other ought not to. So, yeah, this would be precedent, and and I think it would provide a lot of value for uh, attorneys that would advocate that other athletes should get paid. And it's not just college, it's high school, right? What yeah, about high school right. athletes that are being increasingly, we're seeing streaming of youth sports. And we might think intuitively, well, nobody would ever say a 14-year-old should get paid, but 14-year-old you know, actors are paid, 14-year-old uh, musicians are paid. What are, what are the actual justifications for not paying even youth athletes. And I don't know how much money is there and maybe the money is a deterrent from even producing it. I don't know, but it's not going to be limited to, to just division one and the power five. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago on sports Illustrated's cover was uh, Julian Lewis, who's a 10th grade quarterback in, in Georgia. And thoughts are that he may become a millionaire before he leaves, leaves high school, which is really hard to believe that in this day and age, that's what we're talking about. That's where we are. This might have implications for the United States Olympic Committee as well, because television covers their, you know, their Olympic qualifying events and that type of thing. Yeah. And when we're seeing TV deals worth so much money, it's going to attract attention, right? Yeah. It attracts notice. And the, the athletes or the performers that are doing the labor I don't think it's unreasonable for them to say, hey, well, what are, what am I getting now? Uh, uh, and I've talked to uh, attorneys for studios who say, well, you got to look at it this way. A lot of studios lose money just on you know all sorts of uh, entertainment ventures. Uh, you know, they're taking the risk and, and the performers aren't. So there, there are competing arguments to right. all of this. But I think in sports, there's clearly a lot of money being made. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that case, and then we'll shift to a couple others. But I was compelled to read um, Judge Wilkins's decision to include expert testimony and exclude expert testimony. And one of the things that she excluded was uh, UNC law professor Barbara Osborne's testimony regarding Title IX's applicability to this particular situation. Can you explain that a little bit? Right. And, and Professor Osborne is a super accomplished yeah. scholar. I mean, and the, the, the reason why Judge Wilkin excluded it was Judge Wilkin contends, and based on precedent, that if the conference is paying TV rights, 
to the players, that is not a Title IX issue. That right. Title IX doesn't govern conference activity, that the statute doesn't say it, that there's no case precedent, and that she doesn't believe expert testimony saying that the conference would have that obligation is, is verifiable. So the, the gist of the exclusion is that uh, Professor Osborne stating an opinion that Judge Wilkin believes isn't supported by the law. Now, if this is appealed one day, and I'm sure the NCAA appeals, the NCAA is going to say that the judge is exceeding her authority, that this is a, a live issue, that this is unprecedented. I mean, there are counter arguments yeah. to this. Uh, so don't be surprised to see this come up again. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting because I hadn't really considered about the source of the funding. The money comes from the television networks. It goes to the conferences and then it would go to the student athletes directly versus being passed through the school. Right. And that's kind of the dividing line, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep, the, the conferences are there. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, all right. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the, the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, has is suing the Pac-12 or calling into a hearing the Pac-12 and USC and I think the NCAA to talk about uh, employment practices about whether the athletes at USC are allowed to organize as a private employer. You recently wrote about this joint employer idea, and I don't think anybody's really thought of one school let alone being an employer, let alone three entities being the employer of the athletes. So walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so joint employer is the idea, and this often comes up with franchises. So if somebody's yeah. working at, say, a, you know, a local fast food restaurant, that their employer is not only the, the owner of that particular restaurant, but also the franchisor, the, 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 you know, the fast food company at large. Um, okay. So th th that's really, it often applies more in that context than sports, but uh, advocates for college athletes have said, well, the same thing is true in college sports, that if you look at an, if the school is, the employer of the athlete, then the conference and the NCAA would be joint employers because the conference is setting rules for the school's employment of the athlete. Okay. And similarly, the NCAA governs the conference and also the school, and to some extent, the athlete himself or herself. So the, the argument is that they're all part of the same really joint kind of structure. So the, the reason why the NLRB's decision recently to change its rule for what is, a, what is a joint employer under the National Labor Relations Act is important is that basically it's now easier to, to argue that a business is a joint employer, that it's restoring a rule under uh, President Obama's administration that focused on whether the employer, the joint employer could have authority uh, during the presidency of President Trump, it was more cabined in to say that there has to be direct control. Now we're going back to a sort of more permissive test for what is a joint employer. Now, that test doesn't go into effect until later this year, December 26. Okay. It does not govern the USC matter because the USC matter is going to be governed by the rules that were in place prior to that. But if we see college athletes at other schools, private schools, because the, uh, the NLRA governs private universities, maybe next year, try the same thing, then that new rule would be in place. Okay, so that that's helpful. And it, it makes me think about the the whole idea of of the conference and what has happened under the NCAA's transformational structure, which is devolving some of the decision making down to the conferences 
and and basically and to sum it up the ncaa is trying to get out of being sued they, they're tired of being sued and having to defend themselves for millions and millions and millions of dollars so what kind of pressure might this put on conferences to protect themselves if they have a private entity that wants to say our athletes should be unionized yeah i mean it, it puts tons of pressure on conferences and there's no there's no great legal strategy unless i think the ncaa and conferences come up propose a new system a dramatically different system because what's happening now is that the system they have in place is being really savaged by the legal system yeah whether the judge is conservative whether the judge is liberal whether the judge is somewhere in between none of them are buying this system and, and i would be really worried if i'm the ncaa and they haven't really shifted in a way that i think is is fast enough to stymie off some of the big changes that are going to be forced on them and the the, the ncaa what they could do is propose that college athletes in power five conferences and maybe others are employees that and and the ncaa and conferences have some role in that employment and they negotiate with probably multiple unions because under labor law what is the bargaining unit it's pretty permissive so we could see you know for instance uh, at football players at one school or maybe football players at every school in a conference form a union or we could see all of the athletes in a conference form a union now, i don't know if that's going to happen because the football players may not want to be with other athletes right and uh because that could suppress some of their wages potential wages so those are sort of secondary effects that will come up but i think what we're seeing is that it, it it's not going to happen probably this year or even next but it seems inevitable that the system is really going to come crashing down on the ncaa and conferences in their schools and for for university presidents this will more practically mean that the number of employees that they have is going to go up and it, and it isn't as if they can just start cutting teams right now right. because it's going to look like they cut them in anticipation of a, a, a labor expense and that could produce its own labor charges unfair labor practices so yeah, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's too late, but unless the NCAA conferences really act quickly and propose something dramatically different, and there's no reason to think that they will, uh, I think we know where this is heading. And it's, and I would be worried if I were a university president. I I spent a lot of time thinking about the fallout of this on the, on the mid-major division one, of course, what's happened to the basketball schools now with uh, the restructuring of the NIT postseason tournament. I think a lot about Division Two and Division Three presidents. I think about those schools that have just left Division Two and are going to Division One. They're all sort of chasing this idea that we're progressing forward when we grow our athletics program. What advice would you have for presidents in those areas right now to try to anticipate and maybe start thinking about Plan B? I, I think they really need to sort out their budget and assess what would be the, the cost of the number of, of just growing the employment pool at their school to include some or all of their athletes. That's one thing. What is the cost? Um, secondly, what is the practicality of converting some teams into JV or club or uh, you know, intramurals or other there are other setups that could be 
potentially implemented, thinking through what those might be, how that would affect the coaches of those teams and the athletes, how that would affect recruiting of those athletes. And, you know, think about if it happens, embrace it because fighting, it's going to look worse at the end. And if it turns out that they have more employees, try to trying to avert reality, I don't think works. And, and maybe it does mean shifting expenses, but maybe it's an opportunity to embrace it, to say, okay, we're going to pay some amount and it may not be a fortune. Maybe it's minimum wage. Now, minimum wage over an entire athletic department actually starts to add up, right? So I don't, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to downplay it, but the at the same time, uh, think entrepreneurially. Think how to partner with students on maybe different commercial ventures, maybe through NIL or broadcast NIL. Uh, get business people in there who are thinking through those sorts of issues. Because if the, if the decision is to just cut sports, that that is one possibility but then what are the effects of that how will that affect alumni relations how will that affect fundraising uh, you know we see when programs are cut the effect that it has on relations with alumni who have vested stakes in those programs that right. you know sort of the short-term solution of eliminating something could have could be long-term costly so there are lots of things to think through Definitely. And we've been used to operating in a very collective manner in, in college sports. We have a collective set of rules. We have a collection of similarly situated institutions in a conference. This sounds like it requires a very individualistic decision-making. What's best for us? And then if you decide the path, who else can we go compete against? I, I mean, that might be kind of a hard wrestle. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, th I think if we see schools decide to convert teams into club, creating sort of club leagues that are more, more I guess, more impressive or whatever is the right adjective to describe, you know, something that makes a club sport seem kind of like varsity, but not varsity because varsity would be employee status. So if the, mm -hmm. if the, if the goal is to create something that <clears throat> preserves the collegiate spirit, uh, but isn't a varsity sport, I mean, there are creative people that probably can come up with something that would function along those lines. Now, the, the thing, though, is if you make something that looks too much like a varsity sport, then you create a potential legal right. claim. So right, right. Uh, it, 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 some smart people could figure things out, I imagine. I, am, I immediately think about the European model. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that model might be a good outcome to this particular area. So I was... It, as we know, I was just in Australia speaking yeah. to uh, a number of lawyers and, and others uh, in Australia about sports. And, and of course, for there, just like in Europe, it's club sports, right? That the college athletes really are students who play a sport. And there's no, there's no, I, there's no sense that they're professional because the pro athletes self-select out, right? They turn pro, they turn pro earlier. Now, in the U.S., we have the secondary issue of Leagues have age restrictions, which prevent entry into those leagues until a certain age. So in the NFL, it's three years out of high school. Right. Excuse me. In the NBA, it's one year out of out of high school. Now, in the, now basketball is a little different because there are now pro opportunities earlier than college. And while in college, with the G League, uh, prior to college, overtime elite. So it's a little little different. But with with football, I mean, it's college football really is 
a developmental system for the NFL. So in a way, the, the European system may not, at least for some sport, for certainly football, I don't see how it could work for football as things are currently structured, but for other sports, it would have more of an opportunity to have an impact. Yes, there have been people been talking about the European uh, style and, and, and the uh, other parts of the world style of, of being the right way to do. And we've always held ourselves out as having a singularly unique model, but it's kind of ironic that we might end up blowing up that model because it violates the, the athletes' rights. That's it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and the thing is that I think a lot of this was avoidable. I mean, yeah. Ed O'Bannon's case had the NCAA just said, hey, you're right if you're in a video game, you should get paid. It's not really, at the end of the day, a big leap. And most people most people would say, how can you make a video game of someone, feature them and not pay them? You don't need to be a lawyer at all, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I think when, when positions are taken that don't kind of meet the straight face, face test, it's hard and it also creates resentment and it creates opportunities for lawyers who think about antitrust law all the time, who think about labor law and employment law and intellectual property law, who, who think about it aggressively from the standpoint of a plaintiff, they enter the story. And the, I don't think the NCAA had any idea or certainly didn't consider by fighting Ed O'Bannon over something that most people would say is an easy issue. Pay them if they're in video games. By fighting him, it opened the door for all sorts of others to look at these rules and say they don't make sense either. And you co-authored a book with Ed O'Bannon, kind of just bringing home that very that very point that, you know, if the NCAA was was so slow to change, and this has been a criticism leveled at higher education for a long time, that, that we're very reticent to change, and yet we need to. Oh, so much is happening right now that we need to change. So I think I think it's a very good like point for presidents to look at and say, you know, had we not done this, maybe all this wouldn't have happened. But it is, and this is where we are. So today happens to be the first day of basketball season, tipping off tonight, Duke versus Dartmouth in an epic struggle in Cameron Indo Indoor Arena down in uh, North Carolina. Dartmouth made some news earlier this fall with their men's basketball players wanting to create an employee union. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the men's basketball team at Dartmouth has filed a petition with the NLRB to vote on union status. And Dartmouth is contesting it, saying they're not employees, so they can't have a vote to form a union. And it's an interesting scenario because I don't think most people would expect Dartmouth men's basketball to be leading a charge for employee recognition. It's a, you know, it's an Ivy League school that there are very few NBA players from that program. The program has all sorts of data saying it loses money. And yet the players have made, I think, a pretty interesting argument. Uh, one is that they're performing all sorts of activities that go beyond playing basketball, that they're really performing fundraising activities mm -hmm. on behalf of the school and alumni relations, and that the university has made money through them by virtue of not just playing basketball, but the other functions. And the players also argue that the fact that they're losing, that the program might, in terms of accounting, lose money isn't relevant. That there's no test under employment law or labor law that says employer recognition 
requires the entity be profitable. Maybe that makes some intuitive sense, but that's not the law. So they've done a, a good job of sort of pairing that argument. And uh, they argue, look, we're playing Duke. We talk about a way of making a statement, right? Uh, it, it's kind of, I mean, I think we all intuitively think Ivy League basketball, we don't think employees, but look, they're playing at Duke. And not only are they playing at Duke, but Duke, uh, excuse me, Dartmouth marketed this program where if you donate $5,000 to alumni, you go to the game, you get to meet with the players, you have dinner with them. I don't know, it starts to kind of sound like they're they're kind of like working for Dartmouth, yeah. right? So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, it's a really innovative case and we'll see what the it will be the nlrb in boston that's the that's the region and um a decision could could happen any day it could also happen next month there's no set timetable for it but and also whatever is decided by the regional director will be appealed to the nlrb in dc and then it could go to federal court so not, none of this is resolved soon but it's an interesting case and that's the second NLRB action, USC being the first, Dartmouth being the second. And you said something earlier that I wanted to, to highlight, that this shift in focus on priorities differs from presidential administration to presidential administration. Under the Biden administration, it seems like there's been a more assertive step up for athletes' rights. But that might not happen in the next administration. Is that right? That's right. Right. So uh, President Biden appointed uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, who uh, is the NLRB general counsel. And I, I think certainly, although the agency is independent, I think certainly she has taken a, a, a much more pro-labor and she's from the union environment. But she's also, I think, you know, you might imagine she she's progressive, but she's citing Justice Kavanaugh from NCAA v. Alston to say, here, you have a conservative justice who writes an opinion, a concurring opinion that really eviscerates amateurism. So it's kind of interesting, these strange bedfellows, right? You wouldn't expect, you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be together. But yeah, President Biden, I think, has a long background with supporting union rights, and he has advocated for them. Uh, if the next president, hypothetically, is President Trump, then I would imagine we would see a change in philosophy that goes back to his first administration. So uh, in a way, the timetable to get things done might be uh, over the next year, if, if, if in fact there's a change in administration. And just for my listeners, you may remember hearing about this case or a case like this in 2014, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, involving Northwestern and Kane Coulter. And that actually they were allowed, as I remember correctly, that the team was allowed to then vote as to whether they wanted a union, but those ballots were never open because the team had a turnover. Some people graduated and left, so it had to be redone the following year. Are we in that same place now with USC and Dartmouth? We're not there yet, but, but it's a similar scenario. And the Northwestern matter, the regional director sided with the players Right. And then the board in D.C. Cited, cited against them, they cited the university. And you're right that there was a change in players, and that could be an issue here, too. Uh, I, I presume it would be, although the Dartmouth situation could move quickly if the regional director orders an election. So that may not be as slow moving. Now, it will become slow moving once there is an appeal. Then it could really be slow moving. But the election itself might happen sooner. That, that, that issue may not be as 
much of a hurdle there. Hmm. Uh, in USC, it could be more of a hurdle. And the USC petition is by a, an advocate, an advocacy group for college athletes rather than the athletes themselves. Now, presumably, the athletes support this, but we don't we don't actually know that. So the last topic, but probably the one that that generated this conversation was your new paper called New Amateurism uh, that you recently wrote. And it's being submitted to a law review, uh, a law journal. Is that right? Right. Texas A&M Law Review is publishing it. Okay, so you've got you've got a whole new argument for what you call the new amateurism. So walk us through um, where you think presidents ought to be looking at this view of college athletes. Yeah, and I would say as a starting point, I view this not only as a sports law professor, but but also as a former administrator. I was associate dean at my law school uh, prior at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. So I know that change is hard, and I know that changing rules particularly is hard because there's committees, right? That, that there's, there's a bureaucracy that has to be uh, sort of engaged with that things can't be done by fiat. And that also to me suggests that schools need to be thinking about things quickly, that you can't wait because you can't wait to change if, if things have to be run through the, the, the main university and different committees and faculty senate. I mean, just, it, it takes a while and I, and I appreciate that, but that also to me main, means you gotta, you gotta really pursue things fast if you wanna get ahead of the legal system. Uh, because a judge could order something and then that's it game over everyone has to comply with it and the the the, the article argues some of the things that we've talked about which is that i think the ncaa and conferences should proactively acknowledge that some college athletes are employees uh, particularly at the power five level and that by doing so that i think would actually help schools that aren't in these sort of quasi pro leagues to say that their programs are very different, are qualitatively different, and that their athletes are not employees. Because what's gonna happen now is that there will be a court that's gonna look at division one proper and say they're employees. So you know, at that point it's too late to say, well, we're not, you know, we're not Duke, we're not Alabama, we're not Notre Dame. Too late. See, that's, that, that's a really important piece of this. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I really want presidents to understand this. Because you've affiliated yourself with that division, there's this. the courts may have trouble distinguishing between all the different classifications within that division. Fair enough? Yeah. And the, court, the court's going to say that's not our responsibility. You self-selected to be a member of Division One, right? I mean, this is the, you know, you take the good with the bad. And if, you, if you're in the same division with Alabama and USC and, and go down the list of these and Duke, these programs that generate a lot of revenue, that generate a lot of tension, that are always on TV and all of that, that's the lot you're in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's the judge is going to say, that's not my worry. The judge is going to apply the law mm -hmm. and the, and the distributive, distributive effects are not really for the judge to decide. It's about, is this division in compliance with the law? And if it isn't, it will be found non-compliant. And then it's up to the, to the defendant to figure out quickly how to comply. So it could be really abrupt. And, and I, for, for, for academia, which as we know, moves slowly and cautiously and, and handles things with sort of care because of fear of offending in part, uh, 
that's not going to work. Once a judge issues something, that's it. So, yeah, I would I would be telling college presidents meet, get together, and and some would say, well, isn't that an antitrust issue if you have competing schools? Getting at some point, you can't be fear of antitrust law. I mean, this is the, the interesting thing, and I write about this paper is that we keep hearing the NCAA is worried about antitrust law because they keep losing kids. They lost O'Bannon, they lost Alston. It's actually really hard to win an antitrust case. Hmm. The vast majority of antitrust lawsuits fail. The reason why the NCAA loses is because they have these absolute real rules that are sort of overtly anti-competitive. Hmm. You get no money, right? No matter what. Well, that's a court's going to look at that to say that's really draconian. It, a reasonable rule that allows some athletes to get paid and not others based on these five reasons, that probably withstands legal scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly a lot to think about. You also talk about um, how to separate out the, the rule enforcement for NIL pay to play. Let's talk a little bit more about that because people do have a lot of questions about that. Right, so we're hearing that some NIL really isn't NIL, that we're having these collectives, which are groups of boosters that get together to promise recruits, if you go here, you get paid so amount of X amount of money. But that's not what NIL is. NIL is really money for one's name, image, and likeness through a sponsorship, through an endorsement, through some sort of influencing arrangement that to instead just pay them to go to a school, that's pay for play, which is prohibited by NCAA rules. Now the NCAA is going to Congress to say, help us out, we can't handle this. The counter argument is you can handle this and you have to punish schools that do it. And if you don't, you are opening the door for others to do it because it's a competitive market, mm -hmm. right? If one school is doing it and they're in your conference and now you're losing recruits to that school, of course you're gonna do it. So, the NCAA has been really cautious with enforcement, again, because of fear of antitrust liability. I think that's, I think at some point you can't be worried about the boogeyman, right? Because if you do, you'll never go to sleep. Yeah. And this is what's happening to the NCAA, that they're, they're worried about being sued again in cases that I don't think are likely to succeed. Michael, you've given us an amazing, an amazing look at some of the real life challenges that are facing us right now. If you had a couple of pieces of advice to wrap up our podcast for presidents, what might they be? One is don't take whatever the NCAA says, or even the conference says, as the absolute truth or the correct answer. Challenge. Tell them look, we're worried as a, a president's fiduciary duty is to their university, right? So they can't necessarily worry all day about what the NCAA thinks or a conference thinks. They've got to worry about themselves and, and their constituency, which is their school, which is their students, their faculty, their staff, their alumni, their other partners. And I think to, to, to be critical of what's the current framework, being openly critical, even if it ruffles feathers, even if it means that they don't get invited to speak on certain panels, uh, because the, the world's going to change quickly unless they take action. So that's one thing. And I think another is prepare. Prepare for a very different world of college sports, what that will mean for a school. Talk to stakeholders, talk to former athletes. 
you know, don't just talk to, to the athletic department, talk to former athletes, get buy-in, talk to professors, talk to the faculty Senate, talk to staff, uh, have a conversation because it's really hard to do all those things once a court says you got to fix everything fast. Yeah, it's true. Michael, thank you so much for your expertise, your passion for this topic, uh, and your ability to explain things very succinctly and clearly. So it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Karen. Look forward to talking again soon.